Welcome to the Sheldonian. As president of Oxford's medical alumni, I would like to say a few preliminary words. Firstly, we have a frisson of excitement because Sir Terence English is on his way from London. Um, there has been a hitch with the driver who is picking him up. But we um, don't exactly know when he's going to get here. But um, Ian Chalmers has very kindly stepped in in his place and will be representing him. But he will arrive at some point and will take his place on the podium. This afternoon is to be a moderated discussion about physician-assisted dying. Our topic is, of course, solemn and very important. Our speakers have been asked to be brief and will aim to generate light rather than heat. This is not a formal debate and there will be no vote. It is rather a platform for thought and the exchange of questions and views. This is not a public event, as our audience is drawn from current members of the university with Oxford's alumni, who together represent a wide variety of academic disciplines. Our discussion is, however, to be recorded and is set to appear as a university podcast for public viewing. There is to be a reception immediately after the event at the Medical Sciences Teaching Centre in South Parts Road for those who already hold tickets. Our four speakers include a philosopher, an Anglican, and two members of the medical profession who hold different views about making decisions we may face at the end of life. All our speakers are actively involved in discussing this topic at national level. We are very grateful to them for agreeing to take part, especially to Dr. Randall, who has very recently stepped in at the suggestion of Elora Finlay, who is unfortunately unwell. We are delighted that Sir Anthony Kenny is acting as our moderator, and he will now introduce our speakers. Uh, as you have heard, uh, our first speaker is delayed, uh, and Sir Ian Chalmers has very kindly agreed uh, to read the paper which our first speaker prepared. However, Sir Ian says that he is not to be introduced, uh, Sir Terence is to be introduced instead. Uh, so for me, I shall have the hitherto uh, unknown experience of introducing a speaker in absentia. <laughs> uh, Sir Terence, by a profession, the cardiothoracic uh, surgeon, uh, he was uh, the president of the Royal College of Surgeons from 1989 to 92, and master of uh, St. Catherine's College, Cambridge, from 1993 to 2000. So far as I know, he is not himself uh, an Oxford alumnus, but he was Prince Consort of St. Hilda's from the year 2001 to 2007. So uh, I now uh, ask you to listen to Sir Terence English's lecture, uh, which will be read with extreme verve by <laughs> who stood in at the last minute. We hope Sir Terence will be here in time to join in the discussion. So do I. <laughs> Thank you, Anthony. Um, Sir Terence is tall and handsome. You've got me, I'm afraid. More than that, you've got someone whose parents were told that there were 
there was no point in me applying to go to either Oxford or Cambridge. I just wasn't the right sort of material. So I'm going to read you. Someone said they would turn this microphone on when I got up to speak, but maybe it's not working. This doesn't get taken off my seven minutes, does it? Or <laughs> Terence's seven minutes. Okay. I'm going to read Terence's speech, which he sent me uh, about 36 hours ago. Uh, and I, I haven't altered a word, so I'm speaking for him in the way that apparently Tony Robinson did once for Terry Pratchett. Is the microphone now working? Can you hear me? Good. Okay. So the title of the discussion is End of Life, Should Physician-Assisted Dying Be Legalized? This is a subject I have had cause to reflect on throughout my professional career. As a cardiac surgeon, I was inevitably confronted with the death of some of my patients. And what I came to appreciate was that many of the more seriously ill patients accepted the risk of an operation because they placed greater value on improving the quality of their life than on its extension. I have sympathy for this and believe that some of us, uh, for some of us this may also become a consideration towards the ends of a terminal illness. But to start with, I'd like to be clear about what we are and what we are not discussing. So I give you three definitions. The first is voluntary euthanasia. This is defined as a doctor intentionally ending a person's life by the administration of drugs at that person's voluntary and competent request. The second is physician-assisted suicide, which is a doctor helping a person to commit suicide by providing drugs for self-administration at that person's voluntary request. And the third is physician-assisted dying, which is restricted to the self-administration of drugs prescribed by a doctor to a terminally ill, mentally competent adult who wants to have the option of ending his or her life at a time and circumstance of their choice. It is this and not voluntary euthanasia or assisted suicide where the person may not be terminally ill, which we would like to see legalized. So I hope we can accept and adhere to these three definitions during our discussion this afternoon. Before considering what an appropriate law for the UK might look like, I think we should review briefly how some other countries have dealt with the problem. Oregon, in the United States, passed a Death with Dignity Act in 1997, which is similar to that which we would propose. The number of assisted deaths there are 60 or 70 a year, representing about one-fifth or one percent of all deaths. The Netherlands legalized voluntary euthanasia in 2002, and comparable laws now exist in Belgium and Luxembourg. Switzerland allows physician-assisted suicide, which is practiced at the Dignitas Clinic. Our Director of Public Prosecutions has recently effectively decriminalized compassionate assistance by a relative taking someone to Dignitas 
but a doctor doing so is liable to prosecution and there is no similar facility in this country. So what is currently legal here? Well, you have the right to refuse food and water, which would normally lead to your death within one to two weeks, depending on how ill you are. Or if you are in hospital, you may undergo palliative sedation, which is used occasionally to treat unendurable symptoms by rendering the patient unconscious without intending to hasten the course of death. For these reasons, I believe there's a gap in our law which needs to be filled. This is what Dignity in Dying, of which I'm a patron, is trying to achieve, and what the recently published Falconer Commission on, assisting died, uh, on Assisted Dying has supported. So to recapitulate, physician-assisted dying applies only to terminally ill, mentally competent adults, and allows the dying patient, after meeting strict legal safeguards, to have the option of self-administering, life-ending medication prescribed by a doctor who may or may not be present at the time of death. You will note this specifically excludes those who are chronically ill or suffering from a severe disability, but not yet terminally ill, as was the case recently with Mr. Nicklinson. Given this understanding, we need to outline some of the key eligibility criteria and safeguards which would need to be incorporated in a law which legalized physician-assisted dying. First, the definition of terminal illness. The law in Oregon requires a likely prognosis of less than six months, and this is what I would support. Secondly, the request should be initiated by the individual seeking an assisted death and by no one else. And he or she should have the mental capacity to make such an autonomous decision. Two physicians working independently of each other would need to determine that the eligible eligibility criteria had been met. Ideally, the first doctor would be the patient's GP or a specialist involved in their terminal care. They would need to be satisfied that no external pressure had been put on the patient and that he or she had received or been informed of appropriate, appropriate palliative care. Furthermore, should there be concern about the request being affected by serious depression, a psychiatric consultation should be sought. And it is recommended there should be an interval of a minimum of 14 days between the doctor's signing that the request has been satisfied and the life-ending medication being provided to the patient, the so-called cooling-off period. Finally, the prescribing doctor should be responsible for delivering the medication when asked for by the patient, and preferably be on hand at the time it's taken, after which the death certificate should be signed as an assisted death and reported to a monitoring commission. Now, opponents advance many reasons for wanting to prevent such legislation. However, you will need to decide whether these reasons are sufficient to block a law which would be of great benefit to those relatively few individuals 
who wished to have this degree of control over their death. In conclusion, I find that apart from the issue of sanctity of life, the debate is often stereotyped as an argument between those who favor patient choice and those who place a higher value on patient safety. But it's my view that by introducing appropriate safeguards, you can have both. At present, the law attempts to protect people by examining the motives of those who have helped someone to die. Surely, better protection would be provided by a law that required thorough examination of the motives of the person who wished to die while they are still alive. This would be an important component of a new law legalizing physician-assisted dying. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, and thank, we thank also Sir Terence for writing such a clear paper. Uh, to speak in opposition, uh, it's now my pleasure to introduce Lord Harris of Pentregarth. Richard Harris was Bishop of Oxford uh, from 1987 to 2006. When his tenure of the House of Lords as a bishop came to an end, he had proved so popular uh, that he was uh, reappointed to the House of Lords as Lord Harris of Pentregarth. And I have no doubt that if House of Lords reform provides for an all-elected House, uh, Richard will, for the third time, take his seat <laughs> among those first elected. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tony, and good afternoon, uh, everybody. First of all, I willingly concede that there are certain extreme situations where it would be right to accede to a person's request uh, that they be allowed to die very quickly. For example, if you take a battlefield, a soldier very, very severely wounded in extreme agony, no hope of getting any kind of pain uh, killer, in that kind of extreme situation, I believe it would be right to accede to the person's request that they be put out of their misery as quickly as possible. But the point is, what we're thinking about is not the isolated case in a jungle or a battlefield. We're considering about legislation. And we have to consider both the intended and the unintended consequences of legislation. Again, I willingly concede that the proposed bill now drawn up by the all-party parliamentary group based on the Oregon model has had a great deal of care put into it and some very, very important safeguards, and I deeply respect those people who've drawn that up. But we cannot avoid facing what I'm afraid are called the slippery slope arguments. Now, if you are like me at all, I begin by a deep suspicion of slippery slope arguments. They can be too easily called into to play. Um, and when I was, for instance, a member of the HEFEA, uh, and we had to debate whether it was, should be le moral and legal to uh, experiment in some way on the very early embryo up to 14 days. I was satisfied at that point there, would be no, there was no slippery slope to experimenting uh, on the fetus uh, in the womb for various reasons which I haven't got time to. I was absolutely convinced there was a firm handhold. We'd never go down that road. I'm not convinced that we would not get on a slippery slope uh, if we legislated, even with an admirable bill such as being proposed at the moment. 
There are two kinds of slippery slope that have to be uh, considered. The first uh, is about the, what, how you define terminal, which might be defined as six months, which uh, Terence said, but actually in the bill is a, is a year. But if you ask yourself, are you more moved by the plight of somebody who, who is in great distress, but who only has a, a year to live, or somebody like that poor rugby player, age 22, totally paralyzed, unable to move, with the prospect of a whole life in front of them and nothing to look forward to. I'm more deeply moved and feel more strongly for that young rugby player. Therefore, I do not see how you can confine it in the end to only six months or a year of terminally ill, because I think our human compassion will draw us to widen that out. Now, you may agree or disagree with that move. That is not my point. My point is, I don't see how you can start to legislate for, a, a, for people who are terminally ill without also wanting to consider very seriously widening that out for people with chronic in illness or very, very severely uh, disabled. The second kind of slippery slope we have to consider is the move from uh, voluntary assisted dying, which we have heard outlined, to involuntary euthanasia. That is, a person is non-compulsmentist and they're not capable of making a rational decision, but a physician or a, uh, together with the family decides uh, that that quality of that person's life uh, really is non-existence and it would be in their own good to administer drugs which end their life. Now, there's some uh, debate about how you interpret the evidence in Holland as whether they've already moved from uh, assisted dying to uh, uh, involuntary euthan euthanasia. Very difficult to interpret that, that evidence. But it seemed to me there could be huge pressures building up in the years ahead. If we're looking 20, 30 years, years ahead, with a very high proportion uh, of an elderly population being looked after in care homes because they have Alzheimer's, with a much smaller working force trying to maintain uh, care homes for a very, very large elderly population, many of whom are not able to make rational decisions from themselves. It seemed to me that there'd be huge pressures, combination of economic pressures and compassionate pressures, actually to move from assisted dying, which of course is voluntary, to uh, 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 youth, involuntary euthanasia. So there are two kinds of slippery slope, which I hope you'll agree with me, we at least have to take very, very seriously. And I'm afraid that the abortion bill of 1967 does stand as a warning. The 1967 abortion bill was supported by many of the leaving Christians in the, in the, in the country, but none of them had any idea that it would actually come to the, what we have at the moment, where in fact abortion can be had almost on demand, not quite, but, but almost. They did not envisage that. That's not what they had in mind. That's not what they wanted in 1967. Now, again, you may agree or disagree with that huge slippery slope, but nobody can deny that there has been a slippery slope. So my main point is that we have to take into very serious account the unintended consequences of legislating in this in very narrow way, because it could be widened out in both those two ways. One final, rather more uh, philosophical point, and that is, based upon the evidence at Oregon, it's very revealing. The kind of people who are requesting 
a, a digni uh, dignity with their death uh, along the lines of the proposed bill in, in England are on the whole not the very elderly. They're people probably sort of in the age of 45 to 65, professional people, people who've been used to being in control of their lives. And what they fear, and what we all fear, is losing control of our lives and becoming dependent on other people. We all feel like that. But I think behind our fear, very understandable fear, which I fully share, is a very individualistic view of what it is to be a human being, which has really grown, taken old, a hold of our culture in Europe since the 17th century. So we define what a person is essentially in terms of their rationality and their ability to control their life. We believe a person's worth is somehow lost if they lose dignity, if they become dependent on other people. And here I speak from a Christian point of view, but I think it's more than a Christian point of view. And that is that we are essentially persons in relationship. We only become persons in and through our relationships with other persons. And we are interdependent for the whole of our lives. Sometimes we're more independent and help other people. Other times we become more dependent and other people help us. But we don't lose the essence of what it is to be a human being by becoming dependent on other people. So I want to uh, really put in a kind of critique of the underlying sort of philosophical assumption uh, behind so much of this bill because it raises the most fundamental question of what it is to be a human being. Uh, our next speaker uh, <coughs> in favor of the, of the bill uh, is Baroness Warnock. She was a tutor at St. Hughes from 1949 to 66, and then headmistress of the Oxford High School from 1966 to 72, and later was the mistress of Girton from 85 to 91. It must be impossible to count the number of daughters of Oxford alumni who at some time or other have passed through Mary's hands. <laughs> Baroness Warner. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I like the first speaker. Is my microphone working, by the way? Is it? I hope so. Um, like our first absent speaker, I'm going to concentrate on the relatively narrow field that is our subject today, the self-administration of drugs prescribed by a doctor to a mentally competent, grown-up person who is going to die anyway and who has clearly made known his wish to have this option of dying sooner rather than later. I want to consider religious and then secular objections um, to such an arrangement. Now, I'm fully conscious that there is a whole number of cases which don't come within the narrow limits that I'm going to speak of, many of them very, very severe cases which arouse our pity and compassion. So let's suppose a patient who has long made it known that he or she didn't want a lingering death, but that when life holds no more enjoyment, nothing to look forward to except increasing humiliation, dependence, and squalor, 
then death would be preferable to life. Now, in that list of horrors, I don't mention pain because I am aware that the control of pain has very much, very greatly improved in the last two years and will no doubt go on improving as research goes on into palliative care. Um, well, let's suppose that this patient we're imagining, for her, for her, the time has now come. Staying alive is no longer an aim for her. And I find it very hard to see, thinking of this example in isolation, what could be morally wrong with accepting this patient's priority. She prefers death to life in the circumstances that she's in. Because out of compassion, we would normally do our very best to help a dying person to have his dearest wish and would reproach ourselves for, for standing in the way of that being satisfied. And if I were a doctor, I think I would believe my professional duty was to try, as far as I could, to prevent unnecessary suffering, not necessarily always to prolong life. To hasten death, which is coming anyway, in the case that I've imagined, would be thought by most people, I think, to be morally right, if considered in isolation. Now, there will be some people, no doubt, who hold that their religion imposes its own morality and forbids the shortening of life by even five minutes, as some of the Jewish community put it in very strong terms. Now, if such beliefs are held, of course they're not to be argued with. But any envisaged change in the law would exempt such believers from assisting someone to die, just as doctors may be exempt from carrying out abortions if their religion forbids it. Some religions, I suppose, also hold that suffering ennobles the sufferer, but I doubt whether very many doctors or nurses, contrary to all the evidence, hold that that is true. But there are two strictly secular obstacles, which we've heard of, obstacles to accepting the conclusion of compassion. First of all, there's something which hasn't yet been mentioned, which I regard as very important. We must be very sensitive to the language that we use when we discuss this problem. Doctors often say that killing people is wrong, and especially wrong for them, and they could not bring themselves to do it. But I think we have to be sensitive to the connotations of the verb to kill. Now, if a doctor supplied his patient with a lethal drug, pretending that it was simply in the interests of remedying indigestion, say, then indeed he would be guilty of killing his patient. Because to kill normally implies an act of violence against a person's interests or violence against his wishes. Competent human beings can, however, judge of their own interest and their own wishes. Under the change legislation, no one would be permitted to die except those who think it to be in their own interest to do so. They die at their own wish, indeed, at their own hand. They are not killed. So let us not be seduced 
into throwing up our hands in horror by doctors who say, I couldn't kill my patient. But the second obstacle is more serious, and it's the one that Richard Harris has already expatiated on. It is really a pragmatic argument. I shall be told that my imagined case is just that, pure fantasy. We can't regard cases in isolation, except the kind of cases that, that Richard mentioned, the kind of dire situations in time of war. We must always regard the assisting of one person to die as it affects everyone else in the same boat, namely the boat of terminal illness. Once the law is changed, we are told it will be abused. We can't trust human beings so far as to offer them this loophole so that they may destroy each other for their own ends. And even if a terminally ill person is not surrounded by predatory relatives, the fact that receiving help to die is permissible will, we're told, make our patient think that he ought to make the request for the sake of others. And that is something which is very often said. Now, to this objection, I reply, first, part of the motive of somebody who asks help to die when terminally ill, part of the motive, may well be other regarded. And I think that's a very important point to keep in mind. There's nothing wrong with having an other regarded motive for wishing yourself dead. I don't think it's something to be avoided. Why should the dying not be allowed to think about the suffering that they're causing others, as well as their own suffering? Certainly, anybody with adult children is bound to take into account when terminally ill that these adult children are having their lives perhaps wrecked, disrupted by the fact that the patient, he, the patient, needs care. And I don't see why a lifetime of thinking about other people's interests should suddenly be brought to a halt and our, we should be told we've got to think only about ourselves now, not about other people, our children, our relatives at all. This seems to me absurd. So I think the dying should be allowed to think about the suffering they are causing others as well as their own. But secondly, I think it is in the last degree insulting to suppose that someone else, a doctor or a nurse or society as a whole, I'll specify, may refuse the last act of compassion to satisfy their own conscience while wholly disregarding the moral beliefs of the patient himself. The patient is suddenly turned into a child again, dependent, as Richard has said, but dependent in a way that the child doesn't know that he's dependent. Though supposedly mentally competent, suddenly what he has decided that he wants must be disregarded. His wishes will always be trumped by those of other people, and this is the situation of a child. I think nothing could be more degrading for one's last days on earth than to be treated all over again, though apparently mentally competent, as nothing better than a child. Now, I think the safeguards must be incorporated into the new legislation, and they must be taken care of um, if this second and really serious set of obstacles is to be overcome. And I believe that the law 
can do so. I think those safeguards can be set in place, and they obviously require expert and professional probing of the motives of the person who wishes to die and the relatives who will be affected by such a death. And this is an expert business. But I hope that such questioning won't be based on the assumption that any request to die is the outcome of depression or some other mental incapacity. I don't believe that the psychiatric definition of depression is sufficiently tight in this kind of case. I don't think we ought to contemplate doctors saying, well, he's depressed, um, and we can cure his depression. I think we've got to ask ourselves what this expression, depression, actually means in such a context. And finally, I think I would say something about the analogy that Richard has just mentioned with the abortion bill, the steel bill, which was introduced without the idea that there would be so many abortions as there are now. First of all, I don't think this is a terribly good analogy because the desire to have an abortion is far more common than the desire of a terminally ill person to shorten his own life. And the other thing is that statistically, the number of late abortions, which we may all hesitate about, has not very much risen. The number of abortions has risen in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy, where, which in many countries is actually a matter of option anyway. So I don't think we should be scared by the effects of the abortion bill because I don't believe that the analogy is a very close one here. And that's all I want to say now. Thank you. And uh, finally, uh, in support of the bishop's position, uh, Dr. Fiona Randall, a consultant in palliative medicine at St. Mary's Hospital in the Isle of Wight, uh, who was a member of the Royal College of Physicians Committee on the End of Life. Uh, she is, I think, closer to the practicalities of the issues that we are discussing than any other member of the panel, and we're very anxious to hear her. Thank you. Physician-assisted dying is either suicide assisted by a doctor or could be euthanasia by a doctor. The current UK focus is on physician-assisted suicide. The term physician-assisted dying mustn't distract us from the fact that what we're talking about is the doctor intentionally assisting the patient to cause the patient's death, or in euthanasia, the doctor intentionally causing the patient's death. So that's why it is actually physician-assisted suicide that we're speaking of. Now, it entails the doctor accepting responsibility for agreeing to provide assistance in suicide to the patient. For example, the recent draft bill mentioned this afternoon uh, entails the doctor be taking responsibility for ensuring that the patient has a year or less to live, that the patient has adequate information on the illness, the treatment and care options, that the patient has mental capacity for the suicide decision, has a clear and settled wish, and is free from coercion by others. All that responsibility is put on the doctor in this bill. And then, what about the assistance? 
The physician assists by prescribing a lethal overdose of a substance normally used as a medication, but with the explicit intention that that overdose should cause the patient's death. The bill is also explicit that if necessary, the physician will assist the person, assist the patient to take it orally, assist to put it down a feeding tube, actually put up a syringe driver with the medication in it, or perhaps use an intravenous cannula. Now, the more assistance that the doctor gives, the morally closer you become to euthanasia, until, in fact, it is morally indistinguishable from euthanasia because so much assistance has been given, even if the patient might trigger the in initial giving of the medication in some way. Now, current law prohibits assistance in suicide, and prosecution is more likely if you are a healthcare professional. And this reflects the view that doctors in particular must not intentionally cause or assist the cause the patient's death. In, indeed, there's actually a primary role for doctors in preventing suicide. There's a new government strategy on preventing suicide involving doctors. They want us to prevent it, not do it. Anyway, what are the problems of legalizing physician-assisted suicide? Uh, and, and that's really what I'm focusing on, because this hasn't been touched on by the rest of the panel. And I am, after all, a doctor. And this is what I, I, I look after dying people for a living. However, I don't actually practice what is currently being called physician-assisted dying. What are the problems of using doctors? Well, first, there's a problem of giving accurate information. Prognostication is notoriously unreliable. So, and the further away you get from death, the more unreliable it becomes. So using um, a prognostic interval of, say, a year or six months is too unreliable as a safeguard, and we know that we cannot predict that precisely to the patient in giving them that information for their decision. So the information we give to the patient is necessarily intrinsically unreliable regarding prognosis. Secondly, and perhaps an even bigger problem, is that of mental capacity to make this such a serious decision. Now, judgments about capacity are made on the legal basis of the balance of probabilities, not beyond reasonable doubt. That's what judgments of capacity are based on, is more likely than not. And there are many illnesses which can cause subtle cognitive impairments, such as motor neuron disease, multiple sclerosis, and treatments can as well, such as steroids or having your brain irradiated. A bigger problem still, alluded to by Baroness Warnock, is that chronic ill health and severe in health is closely associated with mental illness, particularly anxiety and depression. And it is very difficult to judge when anxiety and depression or other mental illness has reached the point that it so much impairs the patient's ability to weigh things up that the patient lacks capacity. Now, when causing death is at stake, it is absolutely essential that capacity is very thoroughly assessed by experts and probably over a short period of time, not as a one-off. So, if you really want to assess capacity with anything like adequate thoroughness, I think you would need a legally qualified panel of people assisted by a psychiatric opinion where necessary, and that that would be much more reliable than an opinion of one or two doctors. And the opinion of that panel should be based on something much more like 
the proof of beyond reasonable doubt rather than just more likely than not that this patient has capacity. That's very unsatisfactory. Then thirdly, what's the problem? another problem with using doctors, the issue of voluntariness and lack of coercion. Now, we think of coercion as coercion by other people, but a much bigger problem, in my experience, is the patient's feeling that they are a burden. I absolutely agree with Baroness Warnock. This is a real problem for people, this feeling of being a burden. And society gives you the impression, oh, gosh, all these frail elderly people, all these chronically ill people, their treatment is and their care is financially burdensome. Now, doctors are not well-placed to actually detect external coercion by others or any form of internal coercion by this awful feeling of being a burden. If you really want to protect against this form of internal or external coercion, a panel of legal experts to interview the patient and interview those close to the patient would get nearer it, not just the odd doctor. Now, it might be argued that doctors should be the decision makers and the agents because they know the patient. But hang on a minute. We all know that continuity of care in primary and secondary care is now very poor. More importantly, we know that the majority of doctors say they're opposed to physician-assisted suicide, so they are very likely to conscientiously object. So it is, it is quite likely that it will not be your own doctor or a doctor that's known you previously that is involved. Given that, if you want objective and meticulous assessment of a patient's request and the decision, it would be much better to use an experienced legal panel rather than a doctor who doesn't know you very well. So why has there been this assumption that the doctors should be the decision makers with the patient and take responsibility for that decision? And why has it been assumed that it should be the doctor who should actually do the assisting? Well, perhaps it's because the suggested method of causing death is to use a substance normally used as a medication, but give it in overdose. But of course, there are other ways of killing people other than by using overdoses of medication. There may be other substances which have no medical use, but actually would be lethal. What I'm getting at is there is no reason why you have to use a doctor as a prescriber. You could have a specifically trained non-medical prescriber for exactly this purpose, and you could have specifically trained assisters who were not otherwise healthcare professionals. You do not have to use doctors to do this if a legal panel makes the actual decision. The assistance doesn't have to be by doctors. And then perhaps the assumption that it should be doctors has also been based on the argument that legalizing assisted suicide is necessary as a way of putting an end to suffering. But Assisting to cause the patient's own death is not relieving suffering. It's an act which brings an end to the possibility of suffering by moving the patient to a state, i.e. dead, that we presume is beyond suffering. But it's not actually relieving suffering. It's not a treatment. It's not an intervention for healthcare benefit. It isn't something that should actually be part of healthcare. Now, the role of doctors is it can develop and change, but it cannot logically extend to intentionally causing the patient's death, which might otherwise be referred to as killing. But I know Baroness Warnock doesn't like that term. And in practice, if you legalize physician-assisted suicide, 
you are making it part of the healthcare service, and it would then have to be available to everybody who met the legal qualifying criteria. It becomes part of your health service. But the most common argument in favor of legalizing assisted suicide was mentioned by Bishop Harries, and it's this idea of giving people control and choice over when and how and perhaps where they die. People say there's a right to die. Well, there's already a right to refuse life-prolonging treatment. Um, suicide is not a crime. Uh, but so what these people actually want is a duty on society to assist them to end their own lives. That's what the right to die is coming to mean. And that's a bit, a bit torturous, but we need to be aware of that. Now, if society really wants to legalize assisted suicide, it will need to decide which categories of people become entitled to it. If only 2% of suicides are related to terminal illness, often the other 98%, who are you going to assist and who are you going to prevent? What about the people who are frail and elderly but not terminally ill? What about those with awful disabling illnesses but not terminally ill? On the basis of the control and choice argument, it is very difficult to refuse that control and choice to people who are finding their situation intolerable, but they are not terminally ill. You cannot logically do it. Could you Round up. Yes. Laws exist to protect the vulnerable, not just to give people certain entitlements. I don't actually think that assisted suicide should be legalized because I think the overall societal harm and suffering by people who would think, my golly, perhaps I ought to go for this, I'm such a burden, I think the overall harm would outweigh the benefit, and I don't think you can ever invent adequate safeguards to prevent people having their lives ended when the prognosis is wrong or when they actually lack capacity or when there is some coercion. And I particularly think uh, that more harm will be done if you use doctors as the decision makers and the agents. Thank you. We, we have uh, 25 minutes for discussion. Uh, some questions have been sent in in advance, and I, in a moment I will call on uh, some of those who sent in questions and ask them to repeat them. Uh, but I would like to make one point of clarification before we do that. Uh, you will remember that Sir Terence English said uh, we're not talking about assisted suicide. Uh, and you have just said we are talking about mm. assisted suicide. In fact, I think you're not contradicting each other. Um, what Sir Terence is, means is that this bill is not going to legalize any and every assisted suicide by a physician. Um, and what you are saying is, but what is going to be uh, the assisting is actually suicide. And I think these, these uh, are not in compatible positions with each other. Uh, now, we have, uh, as I say, we have had a number of, um, of questions sent in. Um, there's one uh, from Charlotte Tatton-Brown. Is she present? Ah. Well, uh, I will read out the first bit of her question, uh, which is, why are Christians, who of all people should believe in a better life after death, so <coughs> uh, opposed 
uh, to assisted dying for those who wish for it. And further, why do the Church of England bishops claim to speak on behalf of the Anglican Church in that matter when they have not ascertained the views of ordinary church members? I think the bishop is the obvious person. <laughs> I think I'll pass on the, on the second one. It, um, uh, I think because the, the first one is a very interesting, important uh, que question. Um, and in fact, there's rather a good book by Paul Badham, who's a Christian theologian, uh, arguing from a specifically Christian point of view for assisted dying. And he paints a rather attractive picture. Uh, the person would decide that the, the time had come for them to go. They would gather all their family around them. They would have a little service, and then they would take the drug, and then they would go. It's a very attractive picture, um, particularly uh, as uh, Tony has, has stressed. Christians do believe in, in a life after death. So why am I not totally persuaded by it? Some words of Malcolm Muggeridge many years ago, and one or two of you are old enough as I am to remember Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge said towards the end of his life, I believe that at all times and in all circumstances, life is a blessed gift. And I suppose that's feeling about life as, as a gift, which makes me reluctant to be persuaded finally by Paul Badham's uh, view. Because in the end, uh, it is saying to the, to, to the creator, um, I don't want this anymore. There's no more good that come out of it. Now, I'm all in favor of people bringing that into their prayers if they have a relationship with God and actually railing against God. But actually, in, in the end, uh, I believe that life uh, is a gift. Uh, and with Malcolm Muggeridge, I believe from a Christian point of view uh, that no life is finally uh, without some kind of hope, without some kind of good that can't, can come from it. Believe me, I hate pain more than anybody else in this room. I hate indignity more than anybody else in this room. Uh, but there's that wonderful line from Edwin Muir's poem, One Foot in Edom, which says, strange blessings in paradise, fall, ne strange blessings never in paradise, fall from these beclouded skies. And I suppose it's that line which enables me to to face with a positive theological view of the whole question of suffering in, in life, which is so terrible, uh, of which people dying in distress is just one aspect. Uh, is Jennifer Waits here, please? Uh, I see the postal vote is obviously stronger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I will read Jennifer Waits. One of the main objections to legalizing physician-assisted dying seems to be the fear that it would provide a route for getting rid of unwanted or disabled elderly relatives, uh, either for the sake of their money or because their care has become too burdensome. And those relatives themselves might feel obliged to go down that route in order to spare their families the burden or cost. Can you suggest any safeguards which might meet this concern? Uh, Mary, would you? Yes. Um, I, I hoped that I'd said something about this in, in what I said just now. I don't think we should be too much afraid that um, the second part of this 
might come about, namely that the person who is terminally ill might feel that they ought to opt for death sooner rather than later because of the financial or other burdens on their relatives. I think this is a very natural thing to feel, and I don't think that it would be wrong to feel that it would be better if I died now rather than that I died in six months' time when even more misery and expenditure has been spent on what is worth a, a life that I, myself, the patient, feels is not worth living. So I don't think that fear that there may be a kind of altruistic, other-regarding motive in people asking for suicide is really to be feared at all. But the thought that the disabled may be at risk from a change in the legislation does worry me very much because it completely reverses the whole point of the legislation, which would be that the patient who is terminally ill has requested the um, assistance with suicide. And the thought that disabled people are therefore in general at risk seems to be wide of the mark. Because if disabled people want to go on living, they are terminally ill. Of course, not all of them are terminally ill by any means. But if those who are terminally ill want to go on living, then there's no question that this change in the legislation would um, hasten them to their grave. The whole point would be, and the safeguards would be written into the law to ensure this, the whole point would be that they are not being pressured by either their relatives' wishes or, still less, by their disability itself. The whole question of the disability of someone who is terminally ill just doesn't come into the matter at all. And so I don't think that the fears of what I think of as a disabled lobby really are relevant to our question this afternoon at all. Nor, as a matter of fact, do I think that they are relevant to a wider question. Nobody is suggesting that the disabled are particularly valueless. And I think that the mood of the country at the moment is that the disabled, far from being less valuable than other people, are even more valuable than other people because they do so brilliantly well sometimes. So I don't think that is a real fear. I'm, <laughs> Thank you. I'm sure you all want to welcome uh, Sir Terence yeah. English. <laughs> 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 um, and in a moment or two, I will give him an opportunity to, uh, to say something. Uh, but I'd like to uh, take one more of the submitted questions. Um, is uh, Sheila Hickson here? Ah, good. <laughs> do, do you remember your question, or should I? <laughs> Please read it out. Thank you. Thank you. Um, maybe, Sir Anthony, you would just repeat it so that I could be sure that I'd remember. Sorry. It. Perhaps, Sir Anthony, you could repeat it so that I could yes. be sure I'd remembered it correctly. Right. Uh, yes. Uh, sorry, I thought you were going to say it. But I will repeat it. Uh, good palliative care usually obviates the need for physician-assisted dying. However, in some conditions, such as motor neurone disease and pulmonary fibrosis, uh, the terminal feature, severe difficulty in breathing, is extremely difficult to treat. Is there a case for legalizing physician-assisted dying for a selected shortlist of diseases? I think that must be a question for you. Yes. Uh, 
palliative care is good, but it cannot completely alleviate all symptoms. What it particularly cannot alleviate is part of the human condition, is the emotional distress of the end of life, of leaving loved ones, and the emotional distress of feeling a burden, as we've already said. I don't think it makes any sense at all to try to restrict it, uh, legalised assisted suicide, to a small group of illnesses and situations, because you can't logically do that. If you're doing uh, this legalisation on the grounds of giving people choice and control, why give it only in a small number of situations and a small number of illnesses. You cannot logically hold that line. It's terribly unfair on other people who don't fit into those little categories. So that won't work. Um, and I actually think you can't hold the line on it being terminal illness because the people I've seen who've been most distressed are those who are not dying within a year. Those who have things like progressive supranuclear palsy and uh, motor neuron disease, which is not killing them. Those are the people. And so I think the problem here is that once you legalize it, ostensibly for the terminally ill, you will have to extend it to those who, for any reason uh, related to illness, or perhaps otherwise, want assistance to end their lives. So I absolutely think, no, you cannot restrict it to a number of diseases because logically and in fairness, if it's seen as a benefit, you can't hold that line. Thank you. Uh, is Susan Logan here? Uh, well, I'll read her question and then ask Sir Terence to reply to it. Uh, the question is, um, <clears throat> she would like to hear uh, the panel's view on assisted dying for those not physically ill or dying but who have had enough of life. Rather than having to commit suicide in some unpleasant circumstances, should we give people the option to end their life when they decide for whatever reason they choose? Well, thank you, Sir Anthony. And I, I imagine my first uh, uh, requirement is to apologize to you all uh, for being so late. Uh, and particularly to apologize to Bishop Perry and, and Dr. Randall. Thank you. Um, I'm very sorry that I wasn't able to hear what you had to say this afternoon. And I would also like to thank my good friend Sir Ian Chalmers for standing in for me. When Jane Todd suggested that perhaps I ought to have a substitute, I thought this was going a bit too far. <laughs> but anyway, I'm very grateful that she did make that suggestion. I was going to uh, actually start my talk this afternoon by saying what a pleasure it was for me as a Cambridge man to be contributing to an Oxford Alumni Weekend. I've reversed that decision totally as a result of the last two hours. <laughs> I'm very sorry to be late. It was completely beyond uh, my powers. So. Uh, if I could just refer briefly to the previous question, I mean, as it was written, uh, Sheila Hickson, if anybody, for whatever reason, motor neuron disease or whatever, is terminally ill and judged to be terminally ill, they would come within the new legislation. So you do not need a list, as Dr. Randall was saying, but you would have to be judged 
to be terminally ill. Now, I think the second question arises, and it's a, it's a perennially difficult one. What do you do about people who have severe disabilities of one sort or another and really find life intolerable and uh, would wish to die, but who, like the recent case of uh, Mr. Nicholson, are not terminally ill? Now, if you were in the Netherlands or Belgium, where they've legalized euthanasia, you would be able to go down that route. But we don't have that in Britain. What we are trying to achieve is a rather narrow focus of trying to help only those who are dying by helping to give them a good death. There, may be, there, there have been many arguments within Dignity and Dying and, and elsewhere as to whether this is too narrow a focus and whether we shouldn't try and incorporate this group that has been referred to in this question. For better or for worse, we have decided that uh, if we're likely to get any law through, we want to confine it to those who are terminally ill. It is very difficult once you start getting into uh, people who've been disabled and have a long life of disability ahead of them. So that is something which we have decided, as I say, for better or for worse, is just too difficult. Um, I hope that Thank answers you. the question. Uh, I think that the, um, we've perhaps uh, time for just one question from the floor, not a prepared one. So, thank you. One hand went up instantly. Would you like to... Uh, with it? Um, my name is Wendy Savage, and I'm a doctor, retired. And I'd just like to take Dr. Randall to task. She said doctors are against assisted, physician-assisted dying. Now, we have had no survey of the entire profession to see what people do think about this. A recent survey of GPs showed that quite a large proportion, I think it was 60%, did feel that the law needed to be changed. We know that 80% of the population think that the law needs to be changed. And um, at the BMA this summer, the um, agenda committee managed to truncate our motions about assisted dying by taking off the parts about vulnerable patients and safeguards and so predictably we lost the vote and yet six years ago we won a vote which was to say that the BMA should adopt a neutral position because it was not up to doctors to decide what should be done this was up to society to, to say so so as a doctor if you are standing on platforms saying that the profession is completely against it, I would like you to stop saying that because we do not have the evidence to say that that is so. And um, before I sit down, I'd just like to say that having gone to Switzerland with a friend of mine recently, this is a real example of a health inequality that we could do something about. Because if you're rich enough, as my friend was, to pay to go to Switzerland and go to Dignitas, then you can die at a time of your choosing. But if you are not, you can't, and that is wrong. And lastly, um, Lord Harris, 
about the abortion analogy is completely wrong because one of the reasons that the um, people learnt once the law was passed that actually you had to listen to the woman and she made the diagnosis. But before the act, there was a lot of argument about how many abortions were performed in this country. And those of us who were pro-choice said that it was a large number. It was rubbished by the anti-choice people. And so although the numbers have gone up, they haven't gone up as much as you might think if you look at the literature going back to the 1930s. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, we now have seven minutes left. Uh, I propose to give one minute uh, to the, an immediate answer to that question, then three minutes uh, to Lord Harris to sum up his side of the debate, and three minutes uh, to Sir Terence, who, not having been able to have the first word, can have the last word. Uh, in reply to Dr. Savage, um, the Royal College of Physicians did do a survey in around 2006, and they phrased the question in two different ways. And the outcome of the survey of the physicians was 76% and 77% when the question was asked in two different ways, and that's a clear majority opposed. Therefore, the college changed from a neutral to an opposing stance. Similarly, the Royal College of GPs changed uh, to an opposing stance when they surveyed their members and found out the same. The Royal College of Psychiatrists are very opposed to it. The Association for Palliative Medicine found that about 94% of its members were opposed to it. So I think you people have, in fact, been surveyed by the professional bodies, and there is a clear answer. Thank you. Um, thank you, Tony. I don't think I'll need the three minutes. I'm going to focus us on one point which was actually central to, in what Mary Warnock said, uh, and, and that is the idea of choice and control and how towards the end of your life you don't want to be uh, treated uh, in an infantile kind of way. You want to be given the dignity of your, your choice. But your own personal cho choice cannot in all circumstances be the overriding factor. I mean, if you meet a teenager who's going through a period of depression, and they ask you to help them to die, of course you would refuse their request. You'd want them to get better. It is not right in all circumstances to give people what they want. And the essence of, of my case is that however seriously we take personal choice and people's desire to be in control of their, their lives, you have to look at the consequences of legislation. Uh, and I spelt out, uh, in particular, the two kinds of slippery slope which it would lead to. And it was very revealing in what Sir Terence said in the short time that he was able to say it, the debates within Dignity in Dying itself about whether the legislation should be just for people who are terminally ill or it should be much wider than that. Uh, and he said he thought, in effect, this was the only thing which was feasible at the moment. So there's absolutely no doubt if this went into legislation, there would immediately be a huge move by people who thought that six months and a year terminal illness is much too narrow. We want to widen this out 
in the end to allow anybody who is in extreme distress at whatever stage of their lives to avail themselves of this opportunity. So I do think we have to take that slippery slope argument very seriously indeed. So Terence, the remaining time is yours. Thank you. Well, it's got to be difficult. Um, just a, a, a brief comment on the question of the medical organizations uh, who uh, are opposed to, to uh, this and, and have come out in opposition. Dr. Randall mentioned the Royal College of Psychiatrists as being bitterly opposed. In fact, their current position is neutral. There are the Royal College of Anesthetists, no position. General Medical Council, no position. Royal Society of Medicine, neutral. Royal College of Nursing, neutral. Royal College of Nursing Scotland, neutral. Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, no position. Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, no policy. Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, no position. And the Royal College of Psychiatrists, neutral. So there is a large body of medical opinion there which sees this as something that the organizations should not take a stance of being in opposition or for. Their membership covers the whole range of, of medical, uh, the medical profession. And the, the surveys that have been done suggest that about 40% or so of the medical profession would be in favor of an assisted dying bill, 60% against. It may vary from 30 to 70%. But there is a large number of us who feel fairly passionately that it would be a good thing. And therefore, I submit that the organizations like the BMA and like the Royal College of General Practitioners should take a neutral position. What distressed me was when the uh, Faulkner Commission, which was set up not to look into the possibility of legalizing assisted suicide, but specifically to look at the position of whether legalizing assisted dying with a terminal prognosis suggested of about six months should be legalized. Some of these um, members, some of these organizations deigned to actually come before the commission and give evidence to the commission. When they were in opposition, I felt very strongly they should have been there. They should have been prepared to be interrogated by them to give their evidence and that would have been in the final report. Now, why did they not do that? Was this to delegitimize the Faulkner Commission? I don't know, but it was, a, it was an opportunity that was missed. They didn't miss, however, the fact that when the Faulkner Commission did come out, and I do urge you, if any of you can get a look at it, it's only 400 pages long, but there is so much good stuff in it, both for and against. But they came out at the end of this very careful period by recommending that some sort of framework ought to be uh, organized so that, they could that this should be taken forward. And what they've suggested should be taken forward is physician-assisted dying. This rather narrower focus, not including the long-term disabled. Now, when Care Not Killing came out with their 41-page document against the, uh, against the Faulkner Commission, they never used assisted dying, I don't think, once. It was all about physician-assisted suicide and people with long-term problems and so on. 
And again, I think that was not the right way to go, perhaps. However, there were some questions which I would have liked briefly to address. Right. So am I finished One now? minute. One, One minute. minute. Okay. Well, I think my, my, my minute has to be that I think that dying becomes a failure if the patient suffers a distressing or undignified death. I think that if we introduced and legalized physician-assisted dying, this would very nicely complement, for a small number of individuals, would complement the best end-of-life care that they might receive. And I believe that a law can be introduced which would adequately safeguard those who are vulnerable and who've been described uh, uh, as, as it is. Thank you. Thank you.